Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, um, let's take just a moment to connect. What's uh, anybody have any big plans this summer? Yeah, you want to share them or nods enough? Dean, how about you? Yes, are you nodding? What do you got planned? The Super Loop is that driving up to Delta or? Oh, nice. Nice. Amen. Anybody else? It could be ordinary plans. It could be spiritual plans. I don't know. Joe Cosienda is coming up in a little bit. I hope he stops by and says hello. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? Big plans? Dip netting? Anybody? Yeah? No? What's that? That's normal. That's right. That's not plans. That's just part of the routine. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's get to our, our topic tonight. Um, what is an altar? Go ahead, anybody. A reminder? Good. Man, you got abstract there. Anybody else? A place of sacrifice, okay. Oh, that's good. That's really well thought out. It's good. Anybody else? Ryan, I see you on your phone back there. No cheating. You have to come out of your mind. <laughs> All right, I did, I wanted to know what what does an altar mean to you? Because in some, um, even in the ancient world, when people worshipped with altars, they had different conceptions of what that meant. And when we talk about altar today, we usually mean something like a mourner's bench, right? Um, for us in this church, we call these stairs the altar, and we know that there's a a reason for that or a place where we can come and meet with God and. Sometimes we'll say, you know, you can make an altar at your chair where you're at. Uh, some people pray at night by a bedside altar. And so there's something from the Old Testament that where, where there's a tangible thing that carries over into the New Testament. And that's the intersection I want to explore tonight a little bit. And for us to do that, we're going to have to talk a little history. Are you okay with that? Well, whether you are or not, we're going to do it. I just hope we get used to it. All right. So let's talk about the altar, all right? There's a couple words. I know that's super tiny. Let's zoom in here in case you care to know these. The Hebrew word is mizbeah or mizbeah, okay? And it occurs 399 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word, which is a little harder to pronounce here, occurs 23 times, a lot of them in the Gospels when it's referring to an altar. And so... Um, that word 
Thysiaterion is my guess. Uh, you don't have to know that for the quiz. All right, but uh, these are referring to an altar. And the definition that I found for this Greek word here, if you look in the lexicon, it defines the word with the word. And you know, you don't, that's not really helpful always, right? When you define the word with the word, what is an altar? It's an altar. <laughs> that's what it said, but I'm actually defining this Greek word. It's an altar or an object where gifts may be placed and rituals observed, carried out in honor of God, a supernatural being they have. But for our subject, uh, it's a place where we we offer gifts and uh, uh, fulfill ritual observances in honor of God. And so we don't have one verse tonight. We're going to look at several verses. So if you want to turn to a passage that's a little bit longer, look at Exodus 20. It would be a great place to go, but we'll hit some scriptures on our way there. Um, what the altar symbolized was offering to God. I thought it was really good to to recognize it's a physical object in terms of when we're talking about an Old Testament altar, it's a physical object. And even as we refer to an altar here, we're talking about a physical object. But, but it's a place where something spiritual takes place. Something spiritual is taking place, hopefully. Although we could make an argument from some of the texts in the Old Testament that some people went to the physical object, but nothing spiritual was taking place. Remember uh, how it says in Isaiah, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts were far from me. They weren't, uh, the spiritual thing wasn't happening. The physical thing was happening. They were offering things on the altar. Uh, in fact, there's a couple places in scripture, it seems that Malachi is one of them, and uh, and the other one escapes, and I think it says it in Isaiah, but uh, the gist of it is this. You guys should just close the church doors because this isn't doing anything. You think I want more blood? You think I want more bulls and goats? As if I needed those things? What I'm really after is your heart. And so that's the the conception of this, is that, that God really wants something spiritual to take place. And so uh, when we refer to an altar, we're drawing on Old, Te- Old Testament imagery, and it's not so much a place uh, for us in our New Testament walk as it is a disposition, a disposition. Uh, we have a representation of what that looks like. Um, and so increasingly, uh, you know, when we look at our altar here, which we used to have what would be benches out here, mourner's benches and uh, we don't have those anymore since the remodel. They didn't match the furniture. And so we decided we're going to use our steps as, a, as an altar. And these things symbolize something that's taking place. But increasingly, churches are doing away with that. And uh, there aren't uh, a lot of churches with mourner's benches or altars anymore. So we need to ask the question, what's, what's it for? What is uh, coming to an altar for in uh, our New Testament understanding. I think uh, one thing that ought to be right up at the beginning is that it's a place of surrender to Christ. When we come to an altar, it's a place of surrender to Christ. And that's not just when we're giving our heart to Christ and saying to him, I want you to be Lord of my life. But that's also in the subsequent uh, encounters at the altar is that we're coming again and we're submitting ourselves and surrendering ourselves to what God wants to do. Uh, if you've walked the Christian life, you know that it's not just one surrender, but it's a daily sacrifice. Anybody experience that, that you put that carcass on the altar and the carcass wants to crawl off and live for itself again? Is that true or have I just not gotten it yet? 
I, I think it's true. I think it's true that the carcass wants to come off the altar. And so we come back and we visit and we put flesh on there again and say, Lord, I believe this is yours. <laughs> and then uh, we try to live for, for God the best we can. It's a place where we adjust our priorities. When we, um, on Sunday mornings, we, we talk and we invite people to the altar. One of the things I want to happen there is for us to increasingly have God adjusted and focused priorities. You know what I mean by God adjusted? Not what we want, but what you want. This is like Jesus at the Gethsemane rock altar where he's, he's kneeling there and he's saying, uh, going to the cross doesn't appeal to my flesh. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so we, we come to an altar and we have God adjusted priorities. If you're thinking about self, that's one priority. But when you're thinking about the greater purpose of the kingdom, then that's a God adjusted priority. And a lot of times he has to tweak our attitude to come into conformity with that. Uh, anybody, anybody experience that? And so that's a place of adjusted priorities. It's a place we repent. Uh, we fail God at times. We need to, we need to come and repent of those things and change our mind and change our behavior and cooperate with him. It's a place of worship. Uh, I hope you agree with me on this, that when somebody comes to the altar, that's not a sign of weakness. But are you with me on that? That coming to the altar is not a sign that, uh, oh, I wonder what that person did and how they failed God. You know, uh, I think we ought to think of this as um, a bold move that says, I need God. God's help again, and that's a, a place of strength. Uh, it's a place of worship, and so sometimes we come to the altar and we're, we're saying thank you, Lord, for the way you have already answered. It's, it's a place where we offer a gift, and it's a place to receive from God. And so in our New Testament understanding, I think that's what we typically are meaning when we come to an altar like this. So it's true, um, and I, I wanted to point this out. It's true that you don't find physical altars in any description in the New Testament of furniture in the church. I can't think of a single place where it talks about furniture in churches in the New Testament. Can you? A lot of the churches uh, in, in the early church were house churches, weren't they? And what we know of them is that they met in courtyards. So there's a whole movement that's grown up around this idea. Uh, there's a guy named Frank Viola and... Um, who's the guy that wrote Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards. He's kind of in this category, and he believes all churches need to be house churches. If we're going to be New Testament, we've got to get out of these buildings and get back into houses, and I think that's simply wrong. And I think you voted tonight by being here that you agree that that's not absolutely the case. So early churches, a lot of times were house churches, but it's not the only place they had church. Remember, Paul went to the, in Ephesus, went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, that sounds a lot like they're renting a church building, okay? So if you get in a conversation with somebody who's dogmatic and says the way the church is going to be restored to its former glory is to get out of buildings and get in houses, remind them, if you can, of the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and I believe that's Acts 19, if you need a reference for that, somewhere right around there. Jesus was in the temple, and um, also some people think the upper room is referring to the uh, Solomon's portico. So there's there's evidence for that as well, but uh, it could go either way there. Uh, the whole point is not to get dogmatic, and that, that's kind of where I'm going with this, 
is that you don't see a description in the New Testament of any kind of furniture that's prescribed for churches, and that includes pulpits. So there's no description of the pulpit in the New Testament. Uh, there's no description of pews. Uh, I remember several years ago, we uh, we uh, decided that we were going to put chairs in here and sell our pews. And I thought it was going to be a big deal because the church we'd come from, there was a lot of discussion. We went from pews to chairs, and there's a lot of people that were pretty upset about it. Like, how dare you get rid of this sacred thing that we've been sitting on that are so uncomfortable for all these years and and get uh, onto something so much more comfortable? People are just going to fall asleep. And I got news for you. They fall asleep in pews, too. So that was a big deal then. It wasn't a big deal for us. I was I called some of our older members, and especially ones who'd been here since, like, the 50s, and I said, hey, we're getting ready to do this. How is that going to sit with you? And I said, that's fine. We don't care. And I was really grateful for that. <laughs> but here's the point in that is that there's not sacred furniture. And so when we're talking about an altar, we're not just talking about a piece of wood that sits on the floor. We're talking about a disposition in our lives. We come to a place, surely, but you know what God can do here? God can do back there. I like it when we come to the altar. I think it takes a step of faith and it gets us out of our comfort zone and it puts us in a place where other people can see us, that they can pray with us. Um, I think there's benefit to that. But I don't want us to get dogmatic about and there has to be mourner's benches or some kind of wooden structure there because that's really not the point. And so uh, I wanted to say that to keep us from making unnecessary attachments to physical apparatus. Uh, the New Testament doesn't describe anything like that. Uh, as if uh, there were some kind of sanctified objects that were made holy by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I'm not trying to defend a piece of furniture as we talk about altars tonight. Um, there's no scripture relating to that, as I've said. The modern use of the altar, um, and I'm not disparaging churches that don't have them. I'm saying for our situation, they serve a practical purpose. Uh, as I said, it's a place of decision, a place where people... Um, encounter God, and I wrestle with what people have come to expect when they come to church, and uh, there's a lot of different things related to that, but the concept of the altar is still useful to us. Uh, we don't make atoning sacrifices anymore, you know. There are other emphases which the altar pictures which continue to be necessary, and so some of those things we can uh, see in the New Testament related to sacrifices, offerings, uh, aroma and fragrances. But uh, the place of the altar functioned in ancient times for, I think, three primary things. These are general, and you can categorize them underneath other things. Maybe I should show you some pictures of ancient altars here real quick. We'll zoom in. This is the most primitive form right here, this little rock altar. So if you could find a big rock, you could sacrifice something on it. And then this one would be more like a clay, uh, clay brick Adobe structure, something like that, and uh, talks about that in Exodus chapter 20. And then you have this uh, kind of structure where people piled up, um, and this is really important for some reason. We're not told why, but unhewn rocks, you're not supposed to take a tool to them in order to shape them. God wanted, maybe he was trying to avoid some practice that was common in um, Canaanite religion, 
But you pile these things up, and then there's a hearth. That's known as a hearth, kind of like on our fireplace. And that's where the animal went, okay, and the wood. And then uh, as you get further along, you have this bronze altar that would have gone with the tabernacle. And this depiction of it shows kind of a grating in there, and you would have allowed blood to go through and the fire to rise through it. And then these little points here on the ends are the horns of the altar. You probably remember places in Scripture where it talks about the horns of the altar. Uh, I don't know why this one sticks out to me, but Joab, when he was fleeing from Solomon's guys, he went and grabbed the horns of the altar. Well, Solomon got him anyway. <laughs> but the horns of the altar were the... Um, were the things that he clinged to. And this one was built um, with little rings on poles. Why? To carry it with the tabernacle. When you're in a temple, you don't have to worry. You can bolt that thing to the floor. But uh, when you're in a tabernacle, when God says move or the cloud moves or the the fire moves, if they're going to go by night, then uh, get the poles out. Let's move the altar too. And uh, another thing that I think is kind of related to this is the idea that uh, the patriarchs, wherever they went, especially Abraham, uh, he always built an altar. He pitched his tent wherever he was going to stay, and then he built an altar to the Lord to worship. So in in other words, uh, wherever Abraham went, his worship was mobile. You understand that you don't, he didn't have to come to a temple Wherever Abraham was, that was there was going to be an opportunity to worship the Lord. And so, uh, here's the the function of the altar in Old Testament times. And I think the first function is worship. So, if you get locked into the idea that every altar is for atoning sacrifice, I think we miss a conception of the Old Testament altar because I think the the, the first priority uh, of the altar, not priority. Chronologically, the first instances of altars are of worshiping, okay? Uh, I was, uh, excuse me, it was an expression of gratitude to God for his gifts by offering to God a substitutionary gift. Think about Cain and Abel. What were they doing there when they were offering sacrifice? They're giving their first fruits. They're giving their best. And, and that's simply gratitude being shown to God. So the first uh, function of the altar, at least chronologically speaking, it seems to me, is expressing gratitude for the gifts that are given to God. Um, And these would be kind of a substitutionary gift that I'm giving you in place of everything, this symbolic first fruits, okay? That's important to keep in mind because when we give, um, when they gave of their offerings, what they were really saying is, or they should have been saying is, God, you have all of me, but this is a symbolic first portion, okay? It's like a down payment. You know, when God God does this towards us, when he gives us the kingdom, we get a symbolic first down payment of the kingdom. What is that? Or who is that? The Holy Spirit. So that's what this is, is a, a an act of worship. Maybe you had a good crop or uh, later in Old Testament times, you had a, a child, you had a child born, and you wanted to uh, say thank you to God, or you had success in battle. You came to an altar, and you sacrificed something in worship. Okay. A second uh, purpose for the altar, and this isn't necessarily in priority, but uh, I would suggest the second worship or second purpose is atonement. Okay, uh, Atonement is a word that was invented in English. It has a Greek and Hebrew counterpart, but in English, anybody 
want to know what atonement means? It's literal, at one mint, to be at one with God, to be restored, to be reconciled. And so the altar was doing that for Old Testament Israel. It, it brought them back into right relationship with God, at least by virtue of faith. Uh, it was used as a way to offer, uh, to offer something to restore fellowship with God by way of a substitute. Okay? You know that because what Hebrews writes, the blood of those animals could never take away sin. Are you with me on that? That's Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It seemed to be a symbolic act, and uh, there was a way. There was no way for God to have his have a people of God if He demanded of every person that they die on the spot when they sin. Okay, so what He does is when they offer their sacrifice, it's a substitute for themselves in a way. Okay, and and uh, I know we, we're getting kind of nervous about that because. It's not the same thing as what Jesus did. This is a placeholder in history. This is a, a thing that says, here's a symbolic act that points forward to a future reality. Never took away the sins. It only seemed to push them off for another year. And God says, because of this gift, I'm going to accept that for the time being. But there's coming a greater sacrifice that's really going to do the work. But until then, I'm going to accept these animals as a substitute. Okay? So there was no way for God to have a people of God if, if everybody offered themselves as a sacrifice. So they had to substitute. He would accept that substitute to be that temporary placeholder. Okay, so the first um, purpose of the altar in the Old Testament is, t- is uh, worship. Okay, The second is atonement. The third, anybody want to guess what it is? Maybe I better not let you do that. You might come with something that's more profound than what I'm about to say. The third purpose I see of the altar in the Old Testament is teaching. Okay, it's teaching. Uh, it was a way of teaching real obedience to God. Just as giving of our finances is one way we acknowledge the greatness of God's place in our lives. So um, it's easy for people to say, God, I love you. It's another thing to put our money where our mouth is. Are you with me? Okay? It's one thing to say, God, you're worth all of this. It's another thing to live as if that's the case. And so one way that happened is if you think about it in an agri- agricultural culture, um, livestock was money. Have you thought about that? Livestock was money. And so when they're coming, they're bringing their animal. That's their livelihood. They're bringing that to the Lord. I don't, I don't mean it in a weird, perverse kind of way. What I mean is that this is their livelihood, and they're bringing these things to God, and it teaches them this is what God is worth. So a child asks his dad, Dad, why are we taking uh, our, our lamb to the tabernacle? Well, son, this is how much God is worth. He's worthy of our very best. Well, can't we just take the ready old mangy lamb that we have wandering around that has one eye? No, we have to take God our very best because he's worth that. So there's a teaching moment that takes place there. So it's a gesture. He deserves all, but we, we have to operate with some of that. You can't give all your money away. You have to operate with some of it. And so 
he's pleased to let part of it represent the whole. Okay? He's pleased to let part of it represent the whole as long as in the heart a person is wholly dedicated to the Lord. Do you understand what I mean by that? That as we give of our offering, what we really ought to be saying is, God, this is a, this is a symbolic portion, but you really have all of me. You really have all of me. Okay, so the gesture, when it was done right, represents the heart of giving all to God. It also taught the cost of sin was death. When you come to an altar and there's a, an animal laying on there, I, I wonder if in time people kind of got used to that. But, you know, um, this is not kosher to say, but uh, when we were in the Philippines, we slaughtered a pig for our food. Okay, I know we probably shouldn't talk about lambs and pigs in the same category. Are you with me on that? But we had to slaughter that, and I can still remember the sounds of that pig squealing for like 10 minutes and dying. And there's something awful about that. Okay, and when you think about what Israel must have experienced when they laid their lamb on the altar and cut its throat, and I know that... The animal is going to bleed out, but there's a period of time where you're seeing death enacted. And that's kind of a gruesome thing, but it teaches them this is the cost of sin. Okay, And it looks forward to another gruesome and beautiful sacrifice that's going to take place in time. And that's the, the last part of this teaching part is it proclaims a future lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Okay, so we have this uh, altar in the Old Testament that does, that performs these different functions for Old Testament Israel. But, but it was limited in one way because people kept getting hung up on the material portion and not fully giving their heart to God. Okay. So um, then you counter that with what's going on in the cultures around them. I wanted to talk for a few moments about pagan sacrifices and their neighbors. We won't go into depth with this, but the neighbors contrast and uh, the way that Israel used their altars, and they, uh, they used them for serving idols. The pagan conception was different from what God intended altars to mean. And so when you know uh, a little bit about what the, the pagan neighbors around them did with altars, they were appeasing uh, God or bartering with a God, I should say, whom one didn't really love. So if you think about... How people respond to God in the Old Testament and Scripture, it's always, their worship is always response. Do you know what I mean? Like, you ever tried to do something nice for somebody, but they beat you to it and they did it first to you? Can you relate to that? I wanted to show you how much I loved you because I wanted to be the one, because right now it feels like I'm responding to what you've done. We never get ahead of God where we can like give and then he has to give more in return. I think it's always response to him. Do you understand what I mean by that? That He's always the first one to show his love. And so the pagan understanding of this was, we don't, God, we don't really love you, but we're afraid of you or we're afraid of what might happen if we don't offer sacrifices to you or we're afraid that we might catch you on a fickle moment and you might not show us the kind of kindness that we need right now. And so they were bartering with a God who they didn't really love, they only feared. And and uh, so many 
many pagan religions were not ethical. In, in other words, you know, when you read the Bible, you hear God has rules, right? He expects certain things of us, and he expects this as an act of worship. And what are the two primary commands? Love God, okay? And love your neighbor. And God got offended when we didn't love our neighbor right, right? You know, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. If you don't love your neighbor right, God's offended by it. That's why in Isaiah, he was upset with Israel at the temple because they would worship and do all of their sacrifice, and then they'd go out and they would uh, defraud their neighbor in some way. And God said, I'm not buying that you're worshiping me. I don't care how many animals you sacrifice. You're not getting the concept of the altar. I want a life that's pleasing. And, of course, they didn't do it. Well, some did. But in the neighboring religions, it seemed that they became experts or heroes in immorality. And there weren't any rules like this. A lot of religions, it might shock us to hear this because we know that Christianity and Judaism are ethical religions, meaning that if we're going to follow God, it means a change in the way we live. But Canaanite worship, worship Baal, was not ethical religion. There weren't a list of rules that said this is how you ought to behave And the reason I'm saying that is because you don't offend these other gods by breaking some kind of rule. The way you offend them or invoke or bring about their anger and um, retribution or whatever is by not giving them certain sacrifices. A person would... Uh, do well to feed the gods, their animals, since the gods were exalted forms of human beings in their mind. They required sustenance. And so a lot of the, the pagan neighbors believed that we need to give our gods food. And so they would offer their gods, their uh, animals on the altars in order to feed the other gods. And if you don't feed them, they get angry. They get hangry. These other gods get hangry. And so we've got to keep offering these sacrifices. And so you can see it was a sense of obligation and not a response of gratitude and real love. Okay, so a person would do well to feed the gods because they were often fickle and they went on their whims of anger and kindness. So you never knew how you were going to catch them. And so if you had a season of... Uh, harvest coming up, you had to go sacrifice to make sure that God would be in your favor when the harvest time came around. Do you see how different that is? In Israel's worship, you offered sacrifice in gratitude for what God had done. In pagan worship, you were buying that. You were buying that favor ahead of time. And so it was kind of a bartering system. It's so different. Somehow the sacrifices uh, service the God's and could buy their favor. And so this is different from the biblical concept. We don't manipulate God. We respond to him for what he's done. Then here's another thing that I think we ought to understand, and you'll see this throughout the Bible, is that when it comes to pagan altars, the the pagan gods dwelt in high places. Okay, So you're going to see this throughout Scripture. The idea was to go up there and get close to God because he for sure wasn't going to come down. How different is that from us? The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. That's so different. God came down, and He saw what was going on uh, in the days of Noah, right? He came down, and He sees what's going on in the days of uh, Babel. He comes down. 
He's a God who comes down and comes near. And we see him especially coming down and inhabiting the praises of his people. Okay. Uh, but the pagan idea was that you go up, you climb high. And so they had this thing that was constantly said. I see it in Rehoboam's time. Who is Rehoboam, by the way, just to get some context? Solomon's son and David's grandson. What is David known as? What's a, his, like the epitaph of his life? A man after God's own heart, right? He was pursuing God. Um, as much as David got himself in trouble, we never really see him broaching the sin of idolatry, do we? I can't think of a time. He's, his heart is passionately after God. Every king after David, even kings in the northern kingdom, they get compared to David. And it's always this. He did not worship as much as he served the Lord or as, much, as wicked as he was. He did not follow in the footsteps of his father, David. Right? That's the, that's the, like the no-no statement about those guys that weren't really good kings. Well, this is Rehoboam's time. So David, Solomon was half-hearted in his following after God. He's the first king of its, who had said, he did not follow in the footsteps of his father David and loved the Lord with all of his heart. And he worshiped the Lord, but it says that he also uh, built shrines to other gods. Okay? Let's go from this side. David, Solomon, Rehoboam. Rehoboam's time. Here's what it says in Second Kings, First Kings, sorry, chapter 14, verse 22 and, and 23. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. Do you see what's happening here? They're starting, Israel is starting to mimic pagan worship by building altars or at least inhabiting altars that were built on high hills. Okay, this is, we got to go up into the mountains and get close to God. And this became a form of cultic religion. Um, I would uh, suggest to you that uh, Jerusalem's place is not necessarily the most elevated, geographically speaking. I mean, Mount Hermon's much taller. There's a lot of places on earth that are much taller than that. You're not getting... It's not about that. It's a spiritual elevation that we're looking at there. And so the point of it is not go up the hill to get close to God, but it's a place of visibility for those around so that they can connect. But when you look at the pagan religion, they're going up. They're ascending these hills. They're, they're going high in order to get close to God because their gods don't come down for them. So Rehoboam's time, they, they established for themselves High places. In Hoshea's time, which is, uh, if you're talking 931 B.C., and you know, in the Old Testament, you count backwards as years go by. Uh, you're talking about a couple hundred years later, Hoshea's reign in the north, the northern kingdom. It says this in Second Kings 17. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, and they set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. So again, this is a, a practice that's associated with paganism, that altars 
uh, in in uh, the Jewish mindset, the Israelite mindset, were not places that we needed to elevate like a ziggurat to get up high close to God. Uh, Are you following what I'm saying here? That it's not about ascending to the top of the altar. The altar many times, and there's some examples of it where uh, there are some steps that are built, but one of the early prescriptions for what an altar should look like prohibited steps. Did you know that? We'll, we'll read that in just a moment. But uh, the idea, and, and I want us to get a principle from this, is that we don't have to go anywhere to get close to God. He's a God who comes down. Okay? He comes down. And in fact, he is near those who are lowly and contrite in heart. It seems to me, in, at least spiritually speaking, in our disposition, the lower we go, the closer God draws to us. We're not elevating ourselves. He opposes the proud, the high. Proud, uh, the Greek word for proud, and I think probably the Hebrew word symbolizes this as well, is to be lofty in our estimation. He opposes those. But he draws near to those who are lowly. He comes down into our humility. All right, so there's a few more. Jeremiah calls out Israel for this. Ezekiel, uh, who's a near contemporary of Jeremiah also. And I won't read those, but if you want the references, Ezekiel 6, 13, Ezekiel 20, 28, Jeremiah 2, 20, and 3, 6. And then we look at high places. I won't take time to read all of this, but uh, there's over 120 times in the Old Testament it refers to high places almost always derogatorily. Leviticus 26.30, God wants, uh, he warns that he will destroy Israel's high places if they build them. If they worship that way, he's going to destroy it. Numbers 32, uh, 52, he instructed them to drive out all the inhabitants and to demolish their high places. So don't go up on the mountain and worship at their altars or build altars of your own up there. Worship uh, at the place that I'll show you. Deuteronomy 12, 2, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their God. And I came across this really interesting passage in 1 Kings 3 where it talks about an altar, the altars being built in a high place. And it, the high places were a constant sore point in Israel, and the prophets of God frequently spoke out against them. And there are two basic problems with these. One is they detracted from the principle of a central sanctuary. So uh, you know this to be the case that when people isolate, they get weird. Anybody know that? When you get disconnected from the body of Christ, you get weird spiritually too. It's true. And so you can see this, that one thing that God wanted to do for Israel is in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, he needed them to be on the same page. And when people worship on every high hill, they were getting segmented into little clusters. And that's where weird religion started to take off in Israel. You can see it in Judges when the people got isolated. You got this guy that melts down and he builds his own little idol and He gets his own priest, and then a group of bandits come along and say, hey, that's pretty neat. I'm going to take your idol. We're going to take your idol, and we're going to take your priest, and if you don't turn around, we're going to kill you. Get out of here. That's weird, isn't it? That's what happens when people 
get isolated. And so God wanted them not to go up to those places, and that's one reason. The other reason, I think, related to this is that in doing so, they were at risk of uh, syncretizing their religion with Canaanite customs. Okay, So all of the practices of the Canaanites were to go up into these high places and um, sacrifice to the principal deity of the Canaanites. Who was, anybody know? Who did? Baal. Baal is who the Canaanites worship. And here's probably a reason for that, that they would go up to the high places. Is they thought that's where God comes down, but God, uh, the God Baal was a lightning God, a storm God. And if you're going to get, I just was reminded of this, because we don't have this here, but we went to Florida recently. And all the buildings down there, because Florida is pretty much like pretty level, you know, like we got our mountains and topography and where we were, a super level. But they had lightning rods on all the buildings. Because when you get up high, that's where lightning strikes, right? You're more prone to get hit by lightning. So it makes sense that they would put altars up on these mountains if they were wanting God to answer, their God, Baal, to answer with lightning. That's what they would do. So they would go up onto those high places. So God was not pleased with it. And so the interesting thing in 1 Kings 3 is that he, uh, God seems to have made some concession to them because it tells us in 1 Kings 3, the Israelites, they continue to use the high places to worship uh, because the temple hadn't yet been built. And even Solomon was worshiping at the high places. Did you know that? And here's the other thing about that is, as he offered sacrifice at a high place, God asked him, how can I bless you? And so there seems to be at least a little bit of a concession to that, but it was in anticipation that we're not going to worship on those high places anymore. When the temple is built, we're going to worship there. And so if you want to read that puzzling passage, it's in 1 Kings chapter 3. And so with paganism, I, I just should mention this too. They didn't have scriptures and they didn't have a creed. And you can do, do with that what you want, but... And so their altar was different from the altar that the Lord, uh, the Lord gave. And it seems to me, I don't know where it is in my notes here, but that when uh, Elijah went up on Mount Carmel, oh, here it is, his contest with Baal on Carmel was a minor concession to Baal worship. Now, I know what you've heard probably is, Elijah compromised. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that when he went up on Mount Carmel, they probably had a high place up there. And what he's doing is he's bringing the contest onto Baal's turf. Because when he goes there and he combats Baal and God wins and Baal loses, he's beat him at his own game. If Baal is a a God that throws lightning bolts and he is powerless, impotent to throw his lightning bolt and strike the sacrifice... And Elijah says, put water over this. We're not going to have any parlor tricks here. We don't need to help God. He puts water over it. Do it again. Let's make sure everybody knows there's no hidden fire under the altar. And then he prays, what, his 66-word prayer. And a lightning bolt comes out of heaven and consumes the sacrifice and laps up all the water. And God beat Baal 
in his on his home turf, home stadium, at his own game. And what the natural response ought to be, Israel, wake up. The God who answers by fire, don't halt between two positions anymore. Follow the Lord. He beat Baal in his own house. Sorry, I'm getting wound up here. Let's let's move forward. We don't have much time. The point of the altars uh, in the Old Testament was to show a form of worship. But the point of the altar and the worship of Yahweh, they uh, when they were, um, sorry, Exodus 20. We ought to read our scripture here. Let's look at Exodus 20, verse 22 uh, through 26. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver, gods of gold. Make an altar of earth, which we saw a moment ago, for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones, if you make an altar of stones for me, don't build it with dressed stones. That means don't break out your chisel and shape those stones. Just find stones and pile them up. For you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps. Listen to this. Or your private parts may be exposed. Worship was practical. Like somebody might see under your tunic if you build it on steps. So let's keep it low to the ground. Guys, I don't need you to come higher. I can come all the way down. Do you understand the significance of that? All the pagans thought we've got to go up. We've got to climb the the stairway to heaven. We've got to climb the ladder to glory. And what Yahweh worship was, was humble yourself and God will come down. Because he's real. And there's no distance between him and us that he can't make up. So he gave three instructions here. You can make the altar out of earth or stone, just not cut stone. No steps for practical reasons. Let's just call it that. And whenever I cause, notice here in uh, Exodus 20, whenever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. When you build an altar, the smoke begins to rise. I'm going to come down and inhabit your praises. The conception was that God was above us. Smoke rises. God comes down. The New Testament function of the altar concept, we can do this quickly, all right? You can't talk about the altar without talking about sacrifice. And sacrifice is offering something of value to God. The role, uh, the rule surrounding sacrifice requires that God receive the best and not the blemished and not the leftovers. And that carries over. When we give of our gifts to God, we need to give him the best and not the leftovers of our schedule, of our time, of our energy, of our talents, of our money. We've got to be given the best and not the leftovers. You know, sometimes this is played out like this. Uh, Pastor, I've got this old thing <laughs> that we don't need anymore. And it, really, it's fallen apart. Do you guys think you'd have any use for it? And uh, don't you think that's kind of a little offensive to say we're offering this to God, but it's because we don't need any more and it's pretty run down anyway. And a lot of times, because churches rely on gifts, sometimes you have to take stuff like that. But it surely isn't the best. And I'm not, make, I'm not trying to make a case here for anybody doing anything extraordinary 
I'm just saying the principle is we give of our best to God. And if it's your devotion time, do you wait till you're completely tired out from the day and then like, I better just read a few verses? Or are you giving him the best when you're awake and ready to uh, encounter his word? I think those are important questions. So Jesus is the primary sacrifice in the New Testament. We know that. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says that uh, God's, uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith in Romans 3.25. So he is a sacrifice of a different kind altogether. He's not one that we offer. Every other sacrifice that comes from a Christian life is always secondary to Christ's sacrifice both chronologically and in priority, right? You can't offer acceptable sacrifice to God without first receiving the sacrifice Christ has made for us because our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our best gifts apart from our relationship with Christ is filthy rags. If we don't have a relationship with Christ, nothing we do can be good worship because he qualifies it. A lot of people have great intentions, but their worship isn't much to God because they don't have a relationship with Christ. He's the one that purifies us. Remember, the priests and the Levites, before they could perform anything before God, they had to be cleansed, right? And that means that if they had offered any sacrifice, if they had done any ritual act of worship, it would not have been acceptable because they had not been cleansed. That has to come first for our worship to be acceptable. So Jesus is the primary sacrifice. His is different altogether. It's only through him that our sacrifices become acceptable. And uh, the way I understand the sacrifice in the Old Testament is that they were all anticipating the sacrifice of Christ, and it was an in anticipation of that sacrifice of Christ that the others were made effective. First Peter 2, verse 5, You also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So our sacrifices aren't animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices offered acceptably through Christ. And these have to do with praises and holy living and loving others. God's not interested in the kind of self-abuse that some people go through. I, I don't know if you've heard of people like the ascetics who would sit on the top of a pole for seven years in order to somehow atone for their sins or show them their dedication to God as if God is really impressed with that. That's, it seems to me that's not the kind of sacrifice he wants. There are people, I think in the Philippines, there's a parade that happens, uh, I think on Good Friday, in which somebody is literally crucified, not to death, but they undergo crucifixion and flogging in order to show how much they love God. There are people who crawl on broken glass on their knees in order to show their great dedication to the Lord. And the question that comes to my mind is, what for what purpose? doesn't accomplish anything. And it's not even what he's asking for. He's not asking for us to punish ourselves. Any sacrifice God calls for is for a good. He's not calling us to suffer for the sake of suffering. He's calling us to suffer for a good if he calls us to suffering. You understand what I mean? There's a purpose in it. It's not purposeless. In other words, like he could somehow be pleased by us having glass embedded in our knees. Um, in fact, he didn't desire those things. A lot of times people 
try to offer the sacrifice they want so they don't have to sacrifice the thing they don't want. And Saul's the poster boy for this. Remember, Samuel comes upon him and says, why did you do this? Don't you know God uh, desires obedience rather than sacrifice? I'm going to have to skip ahead to a few things here. Romans 12.1 tells us our, our great sacrifice is offering our bodies in view of God's mercy. This is your holy and pleasing service to God. This is your true and proper worship. He wants us to give all of ourselves. And he's not content with us saying, God, you have my mind and you have my heart, but I'm going to do what I want with my body. Uh, he doesn't divide us up that way. We worship him with all that we are. Romans fifteen sixteen, um, Paul talks about being called to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he says, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, a sacrifice is to live holy before God. That's the sacrifice that he's talking about there. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in love, just like Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This suggests that uh, our walking in love is also a pleasing sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma. Not in the same way as Christ, but in a um, kind of modeling kind of way. Philippians 2.17, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice in all of you. Paul is saying to the Philippians here, there's sacrifice and service coming from your faith. And what he means is uh, that you are living a life of faith in, a, in the context of a hostile world. And that's pleasing to God. Philippians 4.13, Paul tells us that the gifts that the Philippians gave him um, were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This means when we give to those in need or to support the work of God, that's pleasing to God as a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15, through Jesus, therefore, let's continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Okay, that's uh, our profession of Christ is seen as a sacrifice to God as pleasing. Hebrews 13, 16, and don't forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So these are sacrifices that relate. We don't carry an altar around with us, at least not physically. But probably spiritually, wherever we go, there's a decision about whether we're going to worship and serve God or do our own thing. And so, in a sense, spiritually, we carry around with us our altar. And the question is, are we putting ourselves upon it and staying there? Or are we allowing ourselves to crawl off? And do our own thing. See, I think when Paul uh, talks about that in Romans 12, being on the altar, he's talking about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. I think he sees himself as if he's on the altar, then he's dead and Christ can live through him. In, in his way of thinking, you know, that's how we ought to reckon ourselves as dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live not I, but Christ lives in me. And so what I hope to see as we, we talk about an altar is that we live out a life that is concordant with what the altar is about. Selfless, living for God, not demanding our own way, uh, rejoicing in the things he's given us, thanking him for it, um, doing the hard thing when it's necessary. That's what 
living in light of the altar means. And uh, it also here, when we come to a place like this and we say this is our altar, it's coming here and receiving from God, encountering God, and, and asking Him to help us to live the life that He desires. So what I hope for our church is that the idea of true surrender and meaningful sacrifice is played out. I want to see a place we can come together and pray together and pray through and uh, really know what it means to encounter God. And I think that happens at a place like the altar because I believe he'll come down and meet us when we live in that way. Amen. Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us the example of what it means to sacrifice. You said those that desire to please you ought to live as Jesus lived. And I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to to be the kind of people who are offering our daily sacrifice to you. Help us to live in light of the cross, certainly the greatest uh, example of what an altar is. And I pray that you help us to, as we walk, carry our own cross with us and to be the people you're calling us to be. Help us to respond. I pray you wouldn't let us uh, use the altar as a place of manipulation of you or other people, but, Lord, it could be a place where in true humility we really seek out what you have for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.